0: No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Everybody knows about the original Dream Team, the 1992 American Olympic basketball team that took the world by storm. It was the first time the pros had been allowed to compete. A lot of people remember the 1984 team, which was led by Michael Jordan and coached by Bob Knight. A lot of people remember what happened in 1972 when the U.S. was robbed in the final seconds, losing the gold medal to the Soviet Union. But less people Fewer people, I should say, are familiar with the story of the first Olympic basketball tournament and the first team to win the gold at the Olympics. That story is told in a new book by Andrew Marinus, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. And it's a pleasure to have Andrew join us. Andrew, thanks for being back with us.
0: Thanks for having me back on, Jeremy.
1: This book, uh, which is a great achievement about a story, as I said, that nobody's really um, given this kind of treatment to before. What, why did you want to? I mean, you're a basketball guy. Why? What brought you to this story?
0: Yeah, I am a basketball guy, and actually it was a a basketball-related trip that sort of exposed me to this story. I was at the University of Kansas to speak about my last book, which was uh, a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first African-American basketball player in the SEC, and I had never been to Allen Fieldhouse before. And so while I was in Lawrence, Kansas, I I made a detour over there. And I don't know if you've been there, but attached to the Fieldhouse, they have um, a building – called the DeBruce Center that has the original rules of basketball under glass, like you might see the Constitution under glass in D.C., right? So I saw um, Naismith's original rules of basketball because he had later become the athletic director and the first basketball coach at Kansas. And right next to it was a picture of Naismith with a Japanese player from the 1930s. And the, the man giving me a tour mentioned, uh, did you know that the inventor of basketball got to see his invention make its Olympic debut at the Olympics. And I had never heard that before. And I said, well, which Olympics was that? And when he said it was the 36 Olympics in Berlin, um, I thought that was uh, too good of a story not to be told, you know, the invention or the international debut of this, such an incredible sport at such a controversial Olympics. Um, And what I'm trying to do with my books now is to write sports and, and social justice related stories, um, for middle school and high school kids and adults. And I thought that that combination certainly existed within this story.
1: It's a story of that first basketball tournament. Um, first time basketball was played at the Olympics. Hadn't been played in 1932 in Los Angeles, even though the games were taking place in the U.S., the birthplace of basketball. But the Germans, Carl Dean, put them on the program. How did that happen?
0: Well, it was uh, Fogg Allen, um, as coach at Kansas, who really was the person that envisioned what we consider the modern game of basketball. You know, Naismith had invented it primarily as just a form of exercise and recreation. That was his real interest in the sport. But uh, Fogg Allen is responsible essentially for the formation of the NCAA tournament and was also um, looking for ways to grow this game internationally. And so he was pitching international uh, Olympic and basketball officials for years. And he he thought he would be successful in 32 in L.A., as he mentioned, because it was taking place here in the birthplace of basketball. But he had once coached a German exchange student named Fritz Sawicki at a basketball clinic at Springfield College in Massachusetts. And Sawicki returned to Germany where he became um, an official with the Hitler Youth. And uh, Allen was lobbying Sawicki and Carl Deem, and also some Japanese officials um, on having basketball included in the 36 Olympics in Germany. Um, And so it's a bit of an uncomfortable truth to think about the fact that it was the Nazis who who brought us this game at the Olympic level. But Allen had been working on it for years, and he was finally successful in convincing the Germans. And I, I think a big reason for that. And, you know, also they played a baseball exhibition game, not a medal sport, but an exhibition game at the Olympic Stadium. And I think the the Germans were conscious of the boycott effort that was pretty considerable in the United States at that time and really wanted uh, more than anything for the U.S. to participate. And I think they threw a couple bones our way by including that baseball exhibition and by including basketball in the Olympics.
1: 110,000 people seeing that baseball game, the biggest crowd, as you write, that had ever seen a baseball game up to that point in time. And... and you know, I wrote a book about, uh, Jesse Owens in the 36 Olympics, and I saw those pictures of the 36 Olympic basketball tournament. The thing that, of course, is most striking to anybody who sees those pictures for the first time is that they're playing outdoors. <laughs> That's right. Uh, on clay tennis courts, essentially. Uh, how, how did that, how did that affect the caliber of play?
0: Well, it affected it tremendously. Of course, the, the, the Germans had promised that it would be a, you know, a brilliant tournament under the open air <laughs> and it turned out to rain. Uh monsoon rain the start of the day before the uh gold medal and the bronze medal games and so those games were complete farces. Um it became a big soupy mess in these clay tennis courts. Players couldn't dribble the basketball or would just get stuck and plop <laughs> in the mud, um, reading the articles from New York Times and other papers. You know, it it was an embarrassment uh, for the sport, even the way it was played at at that time, people slipping and sliding all over the place. Um, USB Canada 19 to 8. To win the first, uh, Olympic gold medal under those circumstances. It was a joke of a, of a final.
1: And of course, the teams were constituted. The U.S. team, I should say, there was no such, I mean, there was college basketball at the time, and, um, but it, it wasn't anything like what we now know, and it wasn't as big a deal. And the teams from which, uh, the U.S., the American Olympic Committee uh, drew, and the basketball um, organizing body drew, were actually these um, kind of industrial company teams. How did that happen? How did that team uh, get picked?
0: That's right. So there was a tournament that culminated with sort of a, an Elite Eight at Madison Square Garden, and it was open to the top amateur teams in the country, which at that time were teams from YMCAs, um, college teams most of whom decided not to play in the tournament, and also AAU teams. And the AAU is far different than what we think of now. You know, it wasn't elite high school athletes. It was guys who had already graduated from college who were playing uh, for companies who sponsored teams as a way to market themselves. Um, so one interesting aspect of that is Long Island University boycotted the qualifying tournament. They had a number of Jewish players on their team, not all Jewish players. Claire B was their coach, and they took a vote. And, and Coach B said, if any any one player on our team wants to protest um, the fact that these games will be played in Nazi Germany, then we won't go. And seven guys rose their hand uh, to to boycott. And that was significant because they were the best college team in the country at that time. Um, and so what what was decided is that the two teams that advanced to the finals of this qualifying tournament at Madison Square Garden would become, would be joined together to become the U.S. Olympic team. And those final two teams were Globe Oil, which was an oil refinery in a small town of McPherson, Kansas, and Universal Pictures uh, from Hollywood. And uh, the guy that put the team together at Universal was named Jack Pierce, who was the head makeup artist at the studio. And he had created the iconic looks for characters like uh, Frankenstein and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. But he was a big basketball fan, and uh, he would dress up players um, in those costumes of the uh, famous horror movies just to sort of promote those movies. Um, Meanwhile, the team from McPherson was considered sort of outcasts within the game at that time. They were playing a different brand of basketball, more like we would recognize today with fast breaks and full court pressure. And they had a player named Joe Fortenberry who, when he dunked the ball at Madison Madison Square Garden, um, was considered the first player ever to dunk. Uh, a reporter from the New York Times described the way he did this unusual shot as if a diner customer was was dunking their donut in some coffee. And that's how that uh, terminology came to be.
1: We're speaking with Andrew Marinus about his new book, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. And Andrew, you know, when you write about the games of the 11th Olympiad, of course, uh, so much is about the backdrop. And you mentioned the boycott efforts in the U.S., the boycott effort narrowly defeated, uh, by Avery Brundage, who ran the American Olympic Committee at the time, uh, Jeremiah T. Mahoney, who ran the Amateur Athletic Union, his, his bitter foe, uh, that, um, that effort was narrowly defeated, uh, in, in the, um, days leading up to the games, months leading up to both the winter and the summer games in Germany. When you write about this subject, you, you have to come back, of course, to what was going on in Germany at the time. And you, you do that in the book. You write a lot about how the situation had changed in the three years since, uh, Adolf Hitler had come to power. And you also have to grapple with the question of whether or not participation was the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, Jesse Owens would emerge as the star of the Games. The African-American contingent was enormously successful. But ultimately, writing this book and researching this book as thoroughly as you did, what conclusion did you draw about whether or not the U.S. should have been there?
0: I think that's sort of the fundamental question that I've been anticipating would be asked whenever I go talk about this. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I know in your book... You write that if, if not for the anti-Semitism of Avery Brundage, we wouldn't have had this magical moment with Jesse Owens at those Olympics. We probably would have boycotted, right? Um, and yet, I think you also point out in your book, it's not as if Jesse Owens, by proving the 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 myth of Aryan supremacy, really what did that change? You know, we still had six million uh, Jews murdered. We still had World War II. We still had Jesse Owens return to the United States where he wasn't treated as an equal person. So I think my answer will be that we should not have participated in those Olympics. Uh, it's maybe easy to say in hindsight but there there was a considerable segment of the US public that even in 1933, 34, 35 leading up to the Olympics was opposed to this idea. How can you have an international event built around these concepts of sportsmanship and fair play? Taking place in this fascist state of, of Nazi Germany, um, the more that I learned about Brundage's own anti-Semitism, the, the the trip that he fa- supposed fact-finding trip that he took to Berlin to see if you know would this be an appropriate place to play, where he's accompanied by Nazi hosts the entire time, and he's palling around with these guys, and the level of propaganda that he was encouraging in the United States, writing letters to German olympic officials and to actual nazis asking them to help him with pr campaign in the u.s to influence um, public opinion while meanwhile he's calling opponents of the um, nazi regime un-american the more that i really realized what a propaganda effort this was the clearer it became to me that um, we shouldn't have been there and i I don't know that it really would have um, it's impossible to say what that effect would have had on on hitler but i think it would have indicated more of an awareness um, internationally uh, of what was happening there at the time and maybe put a little bit more um, of a focus on the, the acts that were already taking place in Nazi Germany and who knows how that might have changed things. But um, no, I don't think we should have gone. What, what, do you, what was your final answer on that?
1: The same as yours for what it's worth. Uh, the same conclusion that uh, oh, there w- were these transcendent performances um and the world wouldn't know who Jesse Owens is today, of course, if we had not participated because there would be no games in 40 or 44. And, uh, and he would have been too old by 48. Uh, that, that wasn't good enough. And the games did achieve for the Germans, uh, what they hoped they would achieve, which is this, uh, huge public relations platform, which, uh, at the time, most people accepted as an indication of, the less than malevolent intentions of the third Reich. And we shouldn't have been taking part.
0: Yeah. And that's the the reason why the book is called games of deception, really sort of getting to that fact that the whole, this whole scene there was essentially a, a facade and a movie set to try to fool the world. And they were, like you said, largely successful in doing that.
1: Well, it's a great book. Uh, As you said, intended uh, not only for young adults, but for adults as well. It's Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. It is a primer as well on the first 45 years of the game of basketball since its uh, creation by James Naismith in 1891 at Springfield College. Another tremendous book from Andrew Marinus. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us.
0: I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy.
1: I'm Jeremy Schapp, and you can listen to new editions of The Sporting Life every Saturday and Sunday morning on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern time.